Thank you. It's a, it's a joy to be back. Thanks to Timothy and President Moeller for inviting me to speak to you this week. Um, Fifteen years ago, uh, I graduated with my master's from Southern, so it's a delight to return to a place that has meant so much to me in my life and my ministry. Uh, this morning, my, my title, I have slides, and my title um, or is, is actually my outline, so I'm, I'm keeping that really straightforward. My hope is what I uh, lack in creativity, I will make up for in clarity. So first, apologetics is good. A few years ago, a colleague of mine who serves with me as a fellow at the Center for Pastor Theologians asked, what do you call an amateur theologian? He quipped, an apologist. It's okay to laugh. (laughs) Needless to say, though, in the moment, I could only muster a forced smile, seeing that I actually an apologist. But I must say, I think my lack of sense of humor put me in good company. St. Augustine and the rest of the fathers wouldn't have been amused either. In fact, they wouldn't have even understood the joke. Because as Cardinal Avery Dulles has pointed out, after the first quarter of the second century, apologetics became the most characteristic form of Christian writing. To be a theologian, to be an to be a theologian, and to be a pastor, uh, for most of these fathers, also meant to be an apologist and meant to defend and commend the faith. So, a return to the fathers means a return to apologetics, and Augustine is no exception. With the reception history of the city of God, which has paid so much attention to its political and theological implications, it is important to emphasize that Augustine's stated purpose is to persuade skeptics and reassure doubters. He made clear in a letter penned after the completion of the city that he wanted the work distributed to those who despise Christians and to the pagan seekers. Augustine himself writes this, I have taken up the task of defending the most glorious city of God against those who prefer their own gods to its founder. So for the critics of apologetics who have fashioned themselves as inheritors of the great tradition in general or inheritors of the Augustinian tradition in particular, my concern is that too many have sold off their apologetic birthrights. Some have mistakenly assumed apologetics is synonymous with a flattened Enlightenment-style rationality or is simply irrelevant for ministry. And I just want to say bad epistemology and a lack of an ecclesial context and pastoral care are certainly, certainly problems for apologetics today. I'll talk about that some this morning in this first lecture. But they are not the early church's problems. They're our problems. Apologetics, as I'm using the term, is the practice of defending and commending the faith. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So yes, actually, apologetics is good. I I sense that I might be preaching to the choir on this point, but I also know uh, free food and free books attracts a a wide range of different people. So... um, But I did want to start off with a little bit of a defense of apologetics. Apologetics is good, but we do have some problems. And I would suggest that Augustine wants a word. The two problems that I'll look at in this lecture 
that I think Augustine would want us to address, um, well, there's two problems. Number one is the dominant contemporary methods have not paid enough attention to shifting cultural contexts. Contemporary apologists have offered the church many valuable insights and arguments uh, that personally have been helpful for me, have been helpful to those who I am ministering to. However, the way these contemporary methodological debates have often been framed have left our apologetic imaginations entrenched inside certain systems. Meanwhile, the cultural winds outside have been rapidly changing. Our late modern imaginations have been inhaling ways of thinking, believing, and living, not mostly by way of syllogisms and analytical argument, but through the oxygen given off by stories, symbols, and artifacts, which have made Christianity seem not only irrational, but oppressive and dangerous. Today, the aesthetic and moral vision of Christianity is being called into question. Our cultural air is far different than what it was even 50 years ago. Augustine would not want us to be paralyzed by these changes, for as Peter Brown's classic biography narrates, and I've just heard you're reading that for the class, so a class that you get to read Peter Brown's biography is worth every cent, right? Um, But Brown's biography narrates how Augustine saw tectonic changes within his own time. In his work, we can discover an apologetic approach that is both pastoral and theologically faithful and also culturally responsive. The apologetic pedagogies that have been developed and passed on more recently have not led to this Augustinian nimbleness. For instance, a former colleague of mine a few years ago sent me this note. He had heard about this project. He had heard me lecture on this, and he sent me uh, the following. He says, early in my teaching career, I taught a semester-long graduate introduction to apologetics. We covered everything from arguments for God's existence and historical Jesus studies to the coherence of the Trinity and the problem of evil. The class was globally and ethnically diverse with students from diverse backgrounds in the US, South Korea, Africa, and South America. Near the end of the course, I vividly recall a student from Africa giving an impassioned critique of how we had spent our time. By the way, I just want to Uh, my friend and former colleague Chad Thornhill here, let me stop here and show the kind of intellectual virtue. Uh, He said, yes, you can publish this uh, as he's evaluating his own teaching is is inspirational to me personally. So he, he lamented that the issues we had addressed were not the issues his own social location demanded. I realized at that moment a painful lesson that in coming to the course with my preconceived goals, well-intentioned though they were, I hadn't actually taken into consideration the starting points, plausibility structures, and questions of my students. In doing so, I hadn't really given them a model of apologetics to take and replicate at any social context. I had given them a Western academic model that, for, uh, that formed by the academy, may or may not have, have much concrete value in the ministerial context to which these students were headed. That's a problem. My colleague had been passing on to his students what he learned in seminary, only until he came to see that these approaches lacked an integrative model, a way of doing apologetics that is responsive to the cultural and historical variances, to what Charles Taylor refers to as social imaginaries. 
Social imaginaries are absorbed and inherited and less formally accepted through logical deduction. This is the air we breathe. These are the stories we tell and pass down. These are the music we listen to. It's under the radar, so to speak. And for this reason, for all of these reasons, the kind of precognitive level by which they frame our rationality, they are so powerful, both in our day and in Augustine's day. Yet my claim is that the apologetic methods we've inherited and passed on too often only give a polite nod, if that, to the social imagination of late moderns. By doing so, the way generations of ministers have been taught to do apologetics risk bypassing the way people navigate their life and imagine the world to be. For example, perhaps no one alive today has done more to advance apologetics than, than William Lane Craig. I am interact, I'm going to interact with Craig a bit at this point because I find him to be one of the most rigorous and influential representatives of contemporary apologetics. So I'm interacting with him. I want you to hear this because in so many ways I admire and respect him. Um, while, while, while Craig is, is not known for his emphasis on cultural analysis, he does admit the limited value of what he terms cultural apologetics in his book, Reasonable Faith. In a chapter titled, The Absurdity of Life Without God, he surveys and assesses cultural apologetics. Um, that's a kind of a loaded term, and I can, we can talk about that later uh, during one of the breaks if you'd like. Uh, I'm not formally defining it here, but just, just follow me for a second. He finds it can be beneficial to use cultural apologetics, which I'm just using a shorthand for kind of a cultural analysis, an awareness of social imaginary. He finds it can be beneficial, but mostly as a negative apologetic used to show skeptics the logical inconsistency of their worldview and the ultimate unhappiness to which that worldview leads. Craig suggests that by working with a person's embeddedness and the predicament in which they find themselves in, we can raise their critical awareness of their lack of meaning, value, and purpose. Thus, early in, early in this work, Craig demonstrates a willingness to nod approvingly towards cultural apologetics and the human predicament, which I just want to affirm as, I think, really helpful and commendable. I hope this will pique the interest of some of his peers and followers who rarely go down this road at all. But I do have some concerns with how, with how Craig isolates cultural exegesis and the human predicament from the rest of his approach. It is wrong to claim, as Craig does, that, and I quote, an apologetic for Christianity based on the human predicament is an extremely recent phenomenon, end of quote. Some 1,600 years ago, Augustine was doing exactly that. While affirming the potential usefulness of a negative critique of the current cultural situation, once Craig moves on to his two-step approach, which is, I think, fair to say the bread and butter of his apologetic, such analyses don't play a critical role. At one point, he even goes far as to deny that postmodernity is real. Indeed, he thinks that, quote, getting people to believe that we live in a postmodern culture is one of the craftiest deceptions that Satan has yet, yet to advise has yet devised, he continues. Meanwhile, modernism, pretending to be dead, comes around again in the fancy new dress of postmodernism masquerading as a new challenger. 
Your old arguments and apologetics are no longer effective against this new rival, we're told. Lay them aside. They're, they're of no use. That's, that's Craig, obviously, quoting what, what people are saying. So now, granted, I would say most would admit that modernity is alive and well within post-modernity, if, if these are even the right terms, and that a kind of pre-modernity already existed within modernity in various forms, such as romanticism. But more at a base level, I would just say, few would deny that something has happened, some shift has happened in the West since the 50s and the 60s. But why does even acknowledging that matter? Why, why am I even making a point of this? Here's the upshot. When cultural shifts are minimized and not fully taken into account in apologetics, it does have practical implications for your preaching, for your ministry, for your evangelism. Take, for example, Craig's own guard, his, it's, his very accessible volume in which he adapts the basic content of reasonable faith in order to equip Christians to defend their faith reasonably and advance faith conversations intentionally. The book represents a cumulative case argument that addresses important questions related to creation, life, morality, suffering, Jesus' resurrection, uh, culminating in an argument for Jesus being the only way to God. Craig offers us, again, many valuable insights here. Yet, he tends to compartmentalize his analysis of and interaction with culture simply to an early chapter. The social imaginaries inherited through culture, however, shape the way that people reason, what they think is plausible to believe, and what they desire. Because Craig neglects to integrate ways of interacting with these deeper cultural frameworks into his main model, readers may conclude that, that they need to simply objectively rehearse the applicable, logic, the applicable logic of the arguments presented to them, to their listeners, to their, uh, to their people, in their evangelism. This would, however, I think be an unfortunate conclusion for readers to draw. For what is perceived as rational by any person is not determined simply by logic. Now, hear me very closely here. Basic logic is an aspect of rationality that is generally recognized to be independent of a given individual's cultural location. So I'm talking about things like the law of non-contradiction. You can't have a married bachelor. Basic logic, extremely important, universal. One, or basic math, one plus one equals two. However, as the philosopher Alistair McIntyre explains, while no one who understands the laws of logic can remain rational while rejecting them, so yes, Yes, and amen to laws of logic. Observance of the laws of logic is only a necessary and not a sufficient condition for rationality. It is on what, what is to be added to observance of the laws of logic to justify ascriptions of rationality that disagreement arises concerning the fundamental nature of rationality. So let me say this in a slightly different way, if you didn't follow that. It's what is added to the laws of logic um, it's what added to the laws of logic that, that, that we conceive of something as rational or not. And that includes the available evidence for historical person or community, what evidence, evidence they focus on and deem as relevant, and then the prevailing cultural meta-narrative or social imaginary. With the latter, again, being less formally reasoned to and more absorbed through the stories and symbols and relationships 
and institutions of a particular community. Thus, okay, so here's the upshot again. Listen to how Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, explains how an apologetic that integrates a robust understanding of the social imaginary differs from one that does not. My account doesn't leave much place for the five ways of proving the existence of God. Okay, if you're a Baptist Thomist here, you might be getting nervous. Just stay with me, okay? Just stay with me. Provided that they are meant to convince us quite independently of our moral and spiritual experience, that one can take them as an unbeliever would, as, as showing the inescapable rational co cogency of certain conclusions, regardless of their spiritual meaning to the thinker. So we need to be careful here. We don't go beyond what Taylor is saying, what he's suggesting. Aquinas's five ways are not completely out of the question for Taylor, at least not according to this quote. And they certainly aren't off the table for, for anyone adopting the approach that I'm going to be suggesting, an Augustinian approach in these two lectures. A rich array of philosophical arguments, including possibly both Craig's and Aquinas's, properly framed are not something I would have you shy away from. In fact, given Augustine's dexterity in persuasion, and you heard a little bit of this last night, um, some of his dexterity in persuasion and his reflections on the natural world and eternal truths, as well as his use of accounts of miracles and historical arguments, is my best guess is that Augustine would have us utilize the best of, these later, of the later classical and evidential tradition, but within a larger apologetic paradigm. However, since I mentioned Aquinas, a few asides might be worth noting at this point. And this might be relatively nerdy, um, but I guess that's what we do here, right? So uh, a few asides here. Aquinas and Augustine both offer apologetic resources we can and should learn from. And they certainly share some common ground with Aquinas being Augustinian in his theology. A certain reactionary response among, among some Protestants to Aquinas has been unfortunate. Yet it is also problematic to skim over the real differences between Augustine uh, and read him through the lens of Aquinas or later Thomisms. For as Edmund Hill explains, to just give one example, Aquinas opts to say that we have a certain knowledge of God as a cause and its effect. Augustine and this is Edmund Hill here, I'm quoting, takes a more subjective line and says in substance that we have direct knowledge of certain values, truth, the good, justice, and hence an indirect knowledge to God as a guarantor of these values or the source from which they derive. Okay, so yes, Augustine is doing apologetics. I think we've established that by this point in the conference. But Augustine isn't doing the same things as Aquinas. To attempt to funnel Augustine into a kind of natural theology developed later in the tradition runs the, runs the danger, or runs the risk of misunderstanding Augustine and ignoring the apologetic gifts he has to offer us today. Now, in case you're suspicious at this point, let me, let me quote um, John Cavadini on this point, one of the most preeminent Augustine scholars of our day, and he says this, the ancient apologies were directed especially at those along the borders of Christian faith, either pagans who had made inquiries or who, regarded, who were regarded as potential prospects for conversion, or Christians who found themselves tempted by the arguments of pagan critics. 
In such a context, it is probably better to talk about strategies of persuasion, of the use of shared rhetorical convention, convention and philosophical wisdom to help leverage and secure Christian commitment, rather than to think in terms of the contrast between natural and revealed theology that has been, in, been of a place in later systematic and scholastic theology. It may be that our readiness to use such categories as natural theology of God anachronistically has blinded us to the genius of these ancient strategies of persuasion and clarification and kept us from learning as much as we can from them. In some sense, this is the project of the Augustine way. What can we actually learn from Augustine about his, his strategies, about his forms of persuasion in a context, as we heard last night in some ways, that has some remarkably similar parallels? So my suggestion is this, and I'll quit with this aside in just a second. Let's learn from Aquinas. Like, let's totally learn from Aquinas. He's part of the great tradition. But let's, and let's learn from Augustine, but let's avoid apologetic repristinations and imagine by simply dusting off Aquinas' five, five ways, we have embraced the richness of the great tradition or been faithful in responding to the contemporary apolog apologetic challenges as we face today, that we face today. Um, and this, this, let me read you one more quote here. Peter Kreeft, um, who's a fan of Aquinas himself, has said of contemporary apologetics this, most Christian apologetics today is still written from a medieval mindset in one sense, as if we lived in a Christian culture, a Christian civilization, a society that reinforced the gospel. No, the honeymoon is over. The Middle Ages are over, though he adds, the news has not yet sunk in fully in many quarters. In this way, Kreef seems to be in agreement with what I read from you, uh, what I read uh, from the quote from Char Charles Taylor that I just read to you. Taylor's caution isn't necessarily an absolute denial of the five ways, but it is a caution against using the five ways as a universal standalone, as standalone proofs with the expectation that they will carry the same weight they once did. It's a point that Augustine's training as a rhetor, as well as his vocational calling as a pastor, which many of you, I assume, are going into. Well, you have to convince people right in front of you, right? And so Augustine's very sensitive, very sensitive to this to how arguments work about persuasive strategies. To the extent that such classical proofs work is largely contingent on the posture and the shared social imaginary between the apologist and the other person. Yet in an increasingly post-Christian context with vastly different social imaginaries or imaginations uh, from the medieval era or even from a century ago, such proofs are less likely to prove effective. Often, many other types of appeals will need to be offered before the average late modern will feel their weight. For such ar arguments in today's context often lack what Graham Hunter refers to as mass. He says this, when candidate arguments present themselves before the court of our mind, asking to believe, they may or may not be equipped with mass. They possess it when they are not only intuitively clear and plausible, but also anchored in the assumptions and practices of ordinary life and connected to habitual pathways of thoughts. 
Arguments that do not fit in so easily have lack mass and are unlikely to be believed. This would in part explain why many who take traditional apologetics courses that don't integrate social imaginary and don't have a way to integrate with these cultural changes that we're seeing. It's, it's, it's why in these courses that many of those who take them eventually find themselves frustrated when they try to use them in ministry contexts. Even when these arguments are cogent and compelling to the Christian students who have learned them, they often end up discovering that these arguments don't have enough mass to, many, uh, to move many non-Christians or many cultural Christians as we slouch further into post-Christendom. In fact, sometimes even the leaders of these apologetic schools find themselves exasperated by the unenthusiastic reception of, and, and even the lack of interest in these types of arguments. So, uh, again, uh, William Lane Craig, he, in a video, talks about how he's perplexed with people's attraction at times to other forms of persuasion. This is what one time he has said. The odd thing that I find is that some people do find Jordan Peterson, I assume most of you know at this point who Jordan Peterson is, Jordan Peterson's approach more persuasive than the approach that I take, which is to give arguments and evidence in support of the truth of the Christian worldview. I don't understand this, frankly. I have to admit I'm mystified. Why is it that Jordan Peterson telling young men to sit up straight make their bed in the morning, is something that's so appealing and arresting to them. It gives them, I guess, a sense of confidence and maleness and perhaps eventually leads them into the direction of the Christian faith. But it seems to me that at the end of the day, there's no, just no substitute for asking the question, but is it true? Now, I, I want to very clearly again say I agree with Craig's point about the importance of questioning the veracity of any view. Christianity works because it is true, not the other way around. Yet Christianity claims to be in line with the universe, with the very fabric of the universe, and thus tells us how to live most fully as humans, to be happy in hope, as Augustine would say. So why not start with this fact and use it in a positive apologetic, inviting the unbeliever to try on Christianity? Not solely as a set of propositions to be affirmed, yes, proposition, truth, important, but not solely that, but also as a way of life. That is, yes, intellectually capacious, but also existentially robust, offering wiser resources with a more ancient pedigree for human flourishing than does Jordan Peterson or other secular representatives of late modernity. Such questions of wisdom and the good life are part of the human experience, have an ancient philosophical pedigree, and if you don't believe me, you can ask Dr. Pennington, who's sitting right back there, uh, in his works on this. Or even better than Jonathan, no offense, Jonathan, you can simply ask Augustine. For the human predicament and Christianity as a way of life are at the heart of the great theologian's apologetic in both the city of God and confessions. Thus, in City of God, Augustine spends so much time discussing the good life and comparing different philosophical approaches to be happy. To put off such concerns or not to fully integrate them into our approach and instead concentrate 
sometimes almost solely on theoretical proofs, to those who aren't accustomed to, the, to such forms of reasoning, misses an, argue, misses an opportunity to offer arguments with mass, with real weight. In this case, living arguments that are much more likely to carry weight and move people in today's context. The young men who have been drawn to Jordan Peterson have often had social experiences that led to identity crises and, and, and lives filled with fragmentation and anxiety. In response, they're looking, it seems, for a sustainable and meaningful way to live, which includes practices that will provide stability and wisdom and peace. Where might they find them? This is a potential opportunity to step in rather than the problem to look rather than a problem to lament, while wishing that people would come to Christianity on our own, perhaps overly modernistic terms. Rather than lamenting how this late modern search for a way to find peace doesn't resonate with our apologetic systems, we could instead turn back to look afresh at the great tradition, at pre-modern Christianity. Ding, ding, ding the city of God. Ding, 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 confessions. My second concern, okay, enough on that. My second concern is grouped under the heading of reductionistic anthropology. Stephen Smith uh, observes this, not the ESPN guy, the, the, the scholar. Stephen Smith observes this. The question, what are we, is one that law, politics, history, and the social sciences seldom ask, but always answer at least implicitly, the question, what are we? The same is true for apologetics. It's always there, this assumption about who are these people we are trying to persuade. It's in the background whether we acknowledge that we have a functioning anthropology or not. Much of contemporary apologetics has answered the question with approaches that suffer from what I would say are reductionistic anthropologies, focusing on one particular aspect of personhood to the neglect of others. James K. Smith suggests that there are different competing models of, of the human person that we can see throughout the history of philosophy and theology. Now, Smith is offering three models that address human, the, the human person as thinker, believer, and lover, and he has a different project than, than the one I'm working on. He's not, he's not working on a project in apologetics, but I think his model, at the very least, gives us a kind of taxonomy that can be adapted to help us think through several apologetic approaches. Modern classical or evidential apologists are prone to attend to, to attend to people primarily as thinkers. People are seen to be persuaded to the truth, which is characterized chiefly through analytic reasoning and facts. In this way of conceiving people, apologists risk engaging people as brains on sticks, to use a, 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 a phrase that, that Smith has popularized, or information processors in search of the right data. This minimizes the effective side of their humanity, appealing most exclusively to their ability to objectively follow the data. A, a more holistic view of human personhood would take into account the reality that human reason is tied to humans' fallen affections and operates within their context of a tradition of beliefs and practices. I'm not denying that apologetics should strive to give a rational warrant for faith. I think the work in Reformed Epistemology and Alvin Plantinga's work is really helpful here. 
I am saying that in answering the big questions of life, one's perception of the good and the beautiful cannot be neatly or simply set aside without impoverishing our rationality. The danger would be to functionally separate out and focus one valid aspect of personhood, which our thinking, our, our, our cognitive ability, or undervaluing other aspects and their role in thinking and deciding. Presuppositional apologetics tends toward engaging people primarily as believers. Its proponents challenge that we see others, other apologists uh, a, a functional ideal of an objective view from nowhere. Emphasizing that all reasoning operates on the basis of faith, they see humans foundationally as believing animals. By faith, a person must first assume a whole constellation of interconnected beliefs, making up the Christian worldview before being able to consistently reason their way within and to the truth. This approach criticizes, and I think rightly, absolutely rightly, the ideal of neutral rationality, and due to the noetic effects of the fall, chastens expectations about what typical evidences by themselves can achieve. However, it still often ends up focusing on the question of how one can or cannot ground rational predication, normally paying little attention to the affections. So yet, here again, the danger, at least, is a kind of reductionistic anthropology. In this case, attending to people as essentially containers for beliefs, with one set of beliefs grounding rational predication and with all other sets of beliefs failing to do so. If narrowly applied, it fails to address the practical problem of relevance, of persuasion. Most people, most people, especially today, don't sense an existential need to find such grounding. That's a problem. Most people simply take practical reasoning for granted, using their reason to help them get what they want. At a societal level, most, most use reason to achieve what feels like to them, like common sense goals that all humans should have. The thinker and believer anthropologies, and here what I'm saying here, capture an important aspect of truth, but taken by themselves are reductionistic, failing to emphasize, and here's the Augustinian emphasis, humans as worshiping beings, and they miss an opportunity to speak to the heart of what drives people to their deepest commitments. For indeed, we reason and we believe, but we also love. Each aspect impacts the other, thus they cannot simplistically be separated. How we reason impacts what we worship, what we worship impacts what we believe, what we believe shapes how we reason and worship, and so on. The feedback loop is, inescapable, is an inescapable dynamic of human cognition and the decision-making process. By neglecting, at least functionally, at least functionally, the importance of humans as doxological creatures, the first two approaches tend to underestimate the power of connecting with unbelievers' deepest aspirations the effects of sin on these desires, and the extent to which an individual's ultimate aims impacts their reasoning. As James Peters explains in his book, The Logic of the Heart, Augustinian reasoning is not a neutral technological process, but is an ethical and teleological activity. Reason, by its very nature, seeks to know and thus possess and enjoy the good. The unified nature of the three aspects of humanity means that we have an opening for apologetics. Engaging over the central pursuits of shared existence as worshiping beings. We're, we're all worshiping something. 
which includes such experiences as our quest for meaning, our need for identity, our longing for communal devotion, our yearning for happiness, our desire to love and be loved. Though these quests take different historically diverse forms because of the diversity of sin and varied cultural expressions, the quests themselves are universal features of our humanity. However, it's not only the, the content of apologetic of our apologetic that is adversely affected by these models, reductionisms, they also result in, in problems of form. Too often in these other models, the, the, the focus is on the what to say, and that's been elevated too far above the how to say it, how to communicate. Aesthetics takes a back seat while depersonal modes of discourse supposedly free of the, the biases of historical particularities are allowed to sit in the driver's seat. Narratives and poetics are looked on with suspicion, and syllogism take, syllogisms take precedence. And yet, in order to capture the imagination, the social imagination, or the individual imagination of the people that we're trying to reach, we need content and forms that are aimed, as Dostoevsky would say, the gut. Or as C.S. Lewis once put it, we need stronger spells that pay closer attention to the charms of our day. This means developing an approach that seeks to understand our current malaise and to know which spells show signs of bringing the hypnotized to their senses. In fact, however, it has not been uncommon to hear leading apologists testify with some pride to not reading poetry and fiction, which makes me want to cry. (laughs) Yet... These are the very forms, as Lewis and Tolkien both realize, and that's why we love them so much, that have the potential for opening up more possibilities to those whose plausibility structure have been shaped by an ostensibly disenchanted or anti-Christian social context. Narratives, in particular, are able to implicitly ask the question, what if? In a form that speaks to the human experience as a narrative, and doxological creature. The stories and the narrative scripts we inhabit through our habitual practices play no small role in forming desire, imagination, and perception. Stories which capture and train our emotion, therefore, play a crucial role in the integration of reason, belief, and desire. By failing to give, by failing to give enough attention to the imagination in either its social or its individual form and the, kind, uh, and the kinds of persuasion that better appeal to human imaginations and desires, Apologetics has often attempted to persuade with a reductionistic view of rationality and failed to register on the street level of late of of the post-Christian West. Now, while confessions and city of God are doing lots of things, don't miss, they're both love stories. They're both love stories. Augustine in confessions, looking for love in all the wrong places, and looking his, his whole intellectual quest is framed by the famous opening, right? His heart is restless. So he very, he's very aware his intellectual pursuits are tied to this restless heart. And in the city of God, you have two cities on a quest, driven by different loves. My concern is that Practical apologetic manuals too often remain on the surface of what is needed for effective persuasion. For example, in the popular book Tactics, Gregory Kukul implicitly provides an example of approaching people primarily as thinkings. 
And now, again, I want to say I really appreciate much of his advice, his clearly thought out arguments and his attempt to keep conversations civil. Uh, um, Yet I'm concerned that the way he explains terms like tactics or maneuvers exposes the danger of what seems to be at least functionally at times a reductionistic anthropology. Let me take you through this really quickly. Timothy, how are we doing on time? Okay. Uh, So in chapter one, Kukul promises to teach the reader, you, how to navigate in conversations so that you stay in control. In a a good way, this is a quote from him, even, even though your knowledge is limited. He continues, quote, I'm going to introduce you to a handful of effective maneuvers, I call them tactics, that will help you stay in control. End of quote. Later, Kukul offers a personal antidote to illustrate what he means. He recounts how while on vacation he met a Wiccan in a town store and asked if she respected life. She said she did. So he asked, quote, if you respect all of life, then I suppose you're pro-life on the abortion issue. At that point, she was trapped by her inconsistency since she affirmed life but was pro-choice. The conversation continued with a discussion about, as he describes it, killing babies. I want to say that abortion is an important issue uh, that as Christians we should stand against. But I'm, I'm interested in the tactics of this conversation. This method moved, at least in this moment, in this conversation, he moved away from the focus on what I would see as rel- more relevant apologetic questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do and what difference does it make? It moves straight for an intellectual and logical trap. Kukul admits, quote, true, I hadn't gotten to the gospel, but that was not the direction this conversation was going, end of quote. However, it seems by his account that the conversation didn't go towards the gospel because the questions he asked did not take their discussion towards the heart, t- towards the heart issues. He later states that he steered, quote, the exchange in that direction, th- the exchange in that direction that I wanted it to go which was not hard at all using my tactics, end of quote. Now, the problem with this approach is not, it's not that it requires another person to think or ask them to consider their contradictions in their beliefs. Augustine would want us to do that, okay? So I want to affirm that point. Kukul's advice on that is sound. No Christian should be against thinking or unwilling to point out contradictions. There's a problem there. The shortcomings with this methodology, I would suggest, has to do with the assumptions it makes about what a human is and how people process information and ultimately are persuaded. The approach keeps the intellectual exchange at the surface level. The woman probably thought, yes, she thought her way to her religious beliefs, but she thought her way there from her heart. What she desired, the hurt she had experienced, the love and community she felt, she was thinking and deciding but not in the framework and categories the person in control of the conversation was assuming. Wicca Wicca was apparently offering her something she believed she needed and was good for her. If so, why ask her about abortion instead of asking her what attracted her to paganism? Kukul's question assumed, assumed she was a Wiccan, seemed to assume she was a Wiccan due to its basic logical coherence and that catching her in this contradiction over abortion could open the door to a deeper apologetic conversation. This seems to me, though, unlikely. The question about what attracted her to paganism would have um, 
left her some space to reply in a number of possible directions. She could have replied, I am attracted to it because after searching for years, I have found it the most rationally consistent system that I've ever read about. That's unlikely. It is much more probable that she would have replied that becoming of Wiccan enabled her to resist evil forces of a male-dominated society or that allowed her to tap into a life force and a community that empowered her. Either of these responses is much more likely to be the primary reason or some, something along these lines, and it would have called for a very different approach. But you know what? You don't know unless you ask. These questions get at the core of a person's motive. I'm um, sorry, basic questions that would move the thinking to a more holistic place would be such things as, how did you become a pagan? What about paganism? Paganism appeals to you the most. These questions get at the core of people's motivations, express respect for her, and create space for her to respond candidly. These questions express, as Sarah Co theologian Sarah Coakley has modeled in asking the, well, an ancient monastic question. What do you seek? In fact, listen to how Sarah Coakley explains her approach. She says this. So I would want to say over against a huge number of moves in recent philosophy of religion and theology against arguments for, against, for God's existence that I would be happy to lay out a range of arguments why it seems to me rational to believe in God, including profoundly experiential reasons. And so take notice here what, what Coakley is saying. Philosophical argumentation, good. We need that. And then I would say, though, she said, Let's, let's, let's look at these arguments, and then I would ask you the big existential question, which is, where are true joys to be found? Because if these arguments simply add up to a range of quite arid, abstract, propositional possibilities, then they're not grabbing you existentially in the way that they would if you were actually prepared to put your life on the line in terms of practices. After hearing all this, okay, you might be wondering, and I'm, I'm closing this out, are these critiques simply built on, so this would be my question if I was out there and hadn't read my book, are these critiques in this first talk simply built off of a kind of Augustinian anthropology that you've cobbled together? Or, or Josh, did Augustine actually do this? Did he actually calibrate his arguments in light of the Roman social imagination and appeal to his readers as doxological creatures. I know you were thinking that, right? And I know you, you're asking that, and so I just wanted to verbalize that for you. And I'm going to get, and, and that's why you need to come for the second lecture, but let me, let me show you where he does this, one spot, and then we'll talk more about it in the second one. Few cultural artifacts permeated the Roman social imagination more than Virgil's poetic narrative the Aeneid. As one historian of late antiquity writes, Virgil's work represented the categories of Roman thought, the forms of Roman sensibility, the imperatives of Roman moral conscience, and the most profound aspirations of, of Roman personal religion. Sabine McCammick's work explains how in the city of God, Virgil was in the shadows throughout. So here we have the Aeneid forming the kind of social imaginary of the Roman world. This is the Disney of the ancient Roman world, right? In some ways, right? In some ways not. But you get the point. 
And, and the narrative of the Aeneid unfolds so that readers don't forget the rationality behind Rome's universal charge. It's a quote from Aeneid. But you, Roman, remember, rule with all your power the peoples of the earth. These will be your arts to put your stamp on the works and ways of peace, to spare the defeated, break the proud in war. In the opening to the city of God, Augustine quotes this final phrase, uh, the final phrase of this famous slide, setting his narration of the Christian story in dialogue with Virgil. The introduction, challenge, the introduction, Augustine's introduction, challenges not the Roman desires for peace and happiness and justice in their entirety. For he will go on to affirm, affirm versions of each concept within the Christian narrative. But Augustine does challenge how these desires are pursued, pursued forgive me, and the existential repercussions of the Roman way of pursuing them. For Augustine would write in his preface, while Christianity teaches that by humility we reach a height which transcends all these earthly pinnacles that totter with the shifts of time, the earthly city seeks dominion even though whole persons are its slaves, and it is itself under the dominion of its very lust for dominion. This desire for dominion that actually puts you under dominion. For while everyone desires peace, pride is a perverse imitation of God that puts oneself or one's tribe in the place of God and, as Augustine puts it, hates a society of equals. The result of the ensuing disorder of affections is the feeling of disintegration as well as hatred and wars. Augustine will go on in challenging Virgil's vision of the good life to show how humility, the way of Christ, and the city of God is the only path to true peace. Notice Augustine. So here's, here's what I want you to see. Augustine doesn't simply sideline Rome's aspirations, passed down to them through Virgil's epic and assumed as part of their social imagination, but rather he explores this narrative. He explores these desires and offers an interpretation that shows how the Christian story subversively fulfills their deepest longings. People reason within images and stories and myths they've inherited through their social setting. Indeed, they will use a kind of logic, but it will be one that fits within the larger framework that they live and move within. No matter if it's a narrative passed down to them by Virgil or by Walt Disney, or by Steve Jobs. An Augustinian approach is able to reason with, against, and sub ultimately subversively fulfill these myths. So let me say this in closing. In academic papers, which you guys have been so kind to, to sit through this morning, critiquing is easy. Saying what's wrong with everybody else is easy. Offering an alternative is always much harder. And so I want to ask your forgiveness if this opening lecture has been too heavy, on, too heavy on the critical side of the equation. And yet, unless you name the sickness, the medicine never looks very appealing. I do believe St. Augustine, as the doctor of grace, has the medicine to heal our apologetic visions. Or as I like to put it, Augustine comes to us from the past to offer us a way forward, a way that while avoiding nostalgic repristinations calls us to retrieve for renewal. The Augustan way offers a path that is both faithful to the past, a path that is both faithful to the past while responsive to the present. And I would be honored 
if you stuck around and let me talk about this more in the second lecture. Thank you.